Well, I'm so glad to see you all tonight on this uh, wonderful night that many people across the globe reserve to celebrate uh, the coming of Christ our Lord. And it's wonderful to see so many guests um, this morning, and I'm sure that there are many people online watching that um, perhaps couldn't be here for various reasons. Um, thank you and welcome. Um, it is a unique Christmas, isn't it? And I'm just so glad that um, you all um, just had it in your heart to want to share some time together um, with God's people and to hear his word um, and, I, and um, to be encouraged um, by why it is that we gather to um, every Sunday and even tonight. Um, it's not just to feel good around other people and um, to enjoy the festive lights on each other's heads, um, but it, it is to remember that if it were not for Christ coming, then Christ would not have died, and he would not have risen from the dead, and we would be without hope. So this is a message of hope. This is a day of hope. Um, we know, of course, that um, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Um, we, we hold no day to be sacred more than another. Um, what we do hold to be sacred is the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, that he came, died, and resurrected for us um, so that we could live an eternal life. Our life is so much more than just us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I would like to, before I begin to expound a little bit on the passage that was read to you, um, there are people, no doubt, in our lives, um, maybe neighbors or friends or even us personally, um, that Christmas is difficult for. Um, some, some of us have lost moms or dads, um, sons, children, friends, and it's a hard time for many. Um, our own dear sister, Patty Hendricks, recently lost her father um, just a couple of days ago, and the, she is just wearing a heavy, heavy heart right now, um, I, and I'm sure some of you are too. So what I'd like to do is just take the next 15 seconds, 20 seconds, to silently pray for those that are going through loss and grief in this holiday season. Could we do that together? God, I know that tonight is a night so many celebrate, so many rejoice, and rightly so. And I pray, Lord God, that those who are grieving would be able to see through the fog and clouds of their own sorrow and have hope in Christ. God, would you do that for them? Would you shine a light on us tonight? God, I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room tonight and everyone watching online that you would just fill us with your spirit, reveal yourself to us, convict us of who you are, who you really are. We love you so much and ask for a special blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this evening, I want to talk to you just briefly so that we're not here too long. I know we all have hams cooking and um, lasagnas in the oven, and, and isn't that fun? Um, so I, I did want to expound a little bit on what is might be a, a peculiar passage of Scripture to pick for Christmas. I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I know we have another day for that. <laughs> and that is Easter. The reason, though, I, I um, chose the resurrection to talk about is because Easter was robbed from us in April, so I'm not going to let COVID get away with it, and I'm going to talk about it tonight. But uh, honestly, though, the real reason I want to talk about the resurrection is because if it were not for the resurrection, the birth of Christ wouldn't matter. He would just be another baby that was born, and maybe he would have grown to be an influential leader, but we wouldn't know his name today. 
and he wouldn't really matter all that much to our lives. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation. There is no hope for the world around us. And there is no hope for you, friend. But there is a resurrection. And the reason that that resurrection happens is because Christ came. God in the flesh. God became man in the flesh so that he might die for your sin and rise again to new life so that you could share in that life with him. It says in the Bible, did you see it? That Christianity is pitiable and useless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Our faith is a waste. Now that's not something I'm making up. That's something written in the Bible. You notice that when babies are born, some of you probably have been around um, other people, when babies are born, maybe you've had a baby yourself, you notice the sorts of things that people say about them. Oh, they're so cute. She looks just like her mother, thank God. I got that one a lot. She's going to be a heartbreaker, how handsome he is. But, but did you notice, if you've ever read through the Bible, what are, what are the audience members that surround Jesus saying about Christ? They're not counting his toes. They're not looking, about, looking at how beautiful his blue eyes are, or brown eyes, or whatever they were. Jesus' visitors give him a different sort of praise, the kind of praise that none of us, hopefully, got when we were born. The angels show up, first of all. <laughs> Just the fact that they showed up should tell us something. They call him King, Lord, Prince of Peace, Savior, Messiah. Read the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see all of these profound praises given to our Lord. They tell Mary, the angels tell Mary and Joseph to name him Jesus because the name Jesus means this. He's, they say, he will save his people from their sins. Simeon says, my eyes have seen, when, when, when the Christ appeared to him as a, as a child, Simeon, the priest, says, my eyes have seen your salvation, the salvation of God. The undeniable expectation of Jesus at his birth was, is that that child would save the world from their sin and reconcile them with their God. That's the expectation that they, you thought your mom had high expectations on you or your dad had high expectations on you. The angelic universe and the shepherds and the priests all surrounded Christ and with one voice they said, this is the Savior and Lord. That is his undeniable expectation, the purpose, the reason for his birth. What is clear from the scriptures is that the way in which Jesus would save, it, save people who would put faith on him is through his death at the cross and resurrection from the grave. That was the way in which he would save us. He wouldn't save us by giving us good advice to follow moral platitudes that if we were good enough and we went to church enough and we pray hard enough then maybe God will consider that and wash the rest of our sins away based on our own virtue. The way in which Christ would save us all throughout scripture, the clear testimony is that he would die in our place for us by grace through faith. And that he would raise from the dead on the third day. And because he, indi he indeed did do this for us, we have the answers to life's most crucial questions. Why we're here? What's wrong with me? It's a good question that maybe you've asked. What's wrong with this world? 
How is it going to be fixed? Where are we headed? Christ is the answer to all those questions. Christ rising from the dead gives us absolute certainty that God is real. It teaches us what he is like, that he's merciful and powerful, that he cares for us individually, and that all the universe takes on this meaning and purpose. That in God's creative and redeeming power, we can be reconciled to him. So tonight I want to do a few things before I, before I stop talking and we conclude. I want to argue that the resurrection happened. It's real. I want to connect it back to his birth. What, is the what does the birth teach us about the resurrection and vice versa? And I want to talk about why all this matters to our lives. We believe that the resurrection is a fact of history. Just as verifiable as the existence of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. In the 1930s, there was a young British lawyer named Frank Morrison who set out, like many before him, to destroy Christianity once and for all. He said, I'm sick of these Christians making these claims. I'm going to prove it wrong, and that will be the end of the church. So knowing the foundational importance of the resurrection, because apparently he had read 1 Corinthians 15, that there, if, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity, and this whole thing is a monumental waste of time. Mm -hmm. So he said, rather than getting bogged down with proving other questions wrong, I'm just going to prove that one wrong, the resurrection. So he focused his time and energy on proving it to be a myth and a hoax. At the end of his research, research he wrote a book called simply this, who moved the stone? And he titled the first chapter, The Book That Refused to Be Written. You can go on Amazon right now, christianbooks.com right now, and you can buy it. As he examined the evidence, he became persuaded against his will, by the way. This was not his motive. He had never imagined this would happen. But he became persuaded against his will that the bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus is an undeniable fact of history. What convinced him? What were the things What were the, that pointed to the reality of the resurrection of Christ? The first thing that he noted was that there were significant cultural shifts around the time of Christ's life. And you had to explain why those significant cultural shifts happened. The first thing that he noticed was around the first century A.D., a completely new religion just popped into existence, the birth of the church. The origin of the Christian church can historically be traced back to around the time of Jesus of Nazareth, not a hundred years after or a hundred years before. The book of Acts, if you open up to the book of Acts, it's just this litany, this treasure trove of stories about how whole communities were stirred by the resurrection of Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says that this message, the message of the resurrection, turned the world upside down, completely changed everything. The early church constantly referred to the resurrection as the basis for their teaching and for their existence. Something happened. To ex something must have happened to explain the beginning and the existence of the church. But not, that's not the only thing that happened. The, the entire calendar changed. Sunday replaced Saturday as a day of worship and rest. Sunday as the Christian day of worship can be traced back to the first century. Why? 
Why then? Something cataclysmic must have happened to justify the complete change and shift of a calendar. For a thousand years, the Jewish culture had celebrated the seventh day, seventh day as their holy day of obligation. And now all of a sudden, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the church decides we're going to come together on the first day. What happened on the first day that would cause them to change their calendar? Their belief in the resurrection accounts for that change. But what about the fact of the New Testament? The Bible, if you might not know this, the Bible has two sections. It's got an Old Testament and a New Testament. These same Jews, the Jew, Jewish people, were, were the, the first Christians were con converted from Judaism. And these same Jews, newly converted to Christianity, only considered the law, the Torah, to be God's word. But suddenly, all of these pens are set in motion. They're considering it to be the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. The resurrection had inspired the apostles to write what they considered an additional inspired word of God to include in the, in the scriptures. Most of the New Testament authors, like John and like Peter and Matthew, it says in scripture were eyewitnesses to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Luke says this in chapter 1. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. These people didn't just hear a story, they saw it with their eyes. The New Testament exists, the Bible exists, because of the witness of the resurrection. But more than that, Frank Morrison was also persuaded by this empty tomb. Not just cultural shifts, but he couldn't explain the empty tomb. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10 tells us that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was found to be empty. Now, there have been some explanations of why it might have been found empty. The earliest explanation for this was that the disciples, the followers of Christ, stole the body. So they made up a lie that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, but they actually had the body. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, even records the chief priests paying the Roman soldiers to say that the disciples had stolen the body. But friends, this would, give a, this would leave us with a, an enormous psychological dilemma if they had indeed done this. First of all, it would make the disciples liars, all of them. Which lie would result not only in the death of hundreds and thousands, but theirs too. Because all of them died preaching the resurrection of Christ. The threat of torture and death surely would have made at least one, two, or three of them confess their lie. But none of them did. And all of them died for what they professed to be true. If the disciples stole the body... How does this account, by the way, for the appearances of Christ later on to many? We'll get to that in a moment. Well, maybe they didn't steal the body. Maybe the authorities, that's, this is another sort of theory, that the Romans stole it. The Jews stole it. But why would they do this? We see all throughout the book of Acts, Peter and Paul preaching the resurrection of Christ and making everyone very upset. If the Roman authorities had the body, they could very easily just parade it down the street to demonstrate the hoax that they were making up. They didn't have the body. 
Oh, how about this? The tomb was empty because Jesus didn't really die. This has been said before. This has been a popular one, popularized really in the 1700s and 1800s. This argument didn't even exist before then. For 1,700 years, no one, had, no one had even thought to suggest this because it's foolish. Jesus didn't really die. It would explain why the tomb was empty, and it would explain how he appeared to people later. It suggested that the severe beating and bleeding of Jesus caused him to slip into this like mild coma, right? They thought he was dead, so they took him off the cross thinking he was dead, wrapped him in graves clothes, and put him in a tomb behind a stone. And when he was in there, the cool of the tomb apparently sort of revived him, and he just walks out. The, the, the disciples thought he was dead, but he wasn't really. Again, if we, if we want to entertain this, we still have to deal with the fact that this would make Jesus a monumental liar and a very evil person to claim that he had died when he hadn't. But consider this too. Could a half-dead and beaten man survive alone in a cave with no care, no food, no water, and wrapped in 75 pounds of grave clothes and spices? Is it possible for that same man to rip those clothes off himself, push the stone away, escape the guard's intention, uh, attention, and walk miles on punctured feet? How could he have convinced, this is the best question, I think, how could he have convinced the disciples and the hundreds of people that he appeared to in that condition that he rose from the dead? No one believe it. Why was the tomb empty? Because Jesus was alive. He rose from the dead. The one thing, too, that was so convincing to our author of who moved the stone was the appearances of Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of people testified to have seen Christ, to talk with him, to eat with him, and walk with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, at the same time. Most of whom are still alive. Why do you think Paul included that? Go talk to him, in other words. You don't believe me? They're still alive. Go ask them what they saw. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. According to Luke and Paul, those who witnessed the appearances are still alive. Eyewitnesses. Christ appeared to individuals, in other words, at, at one time to one person, to Peter, to Mary. He would appear to small groups, the 11 disciples in John chapter 20, and then to large groups of 500 right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why is this? The only explanation that people have adequately given was that he didn't die, which we just dealt with. Who would have believed that in that condition? The, o the only other explanation for this is that they were all hallucinating. In other words, they didn't really see Jesus. It was almost like a, a dream that they had. They were hallucinating. Hallucinations, if you know anything about hallucinations medically, happen to people with vivid imaginations or with a nervous makeup. But friends, this happened to a large variety of people, not just three or four. They tend to be unique to each person. In other words, no hallucination is exactly the same. No two people hallucinate generally the same thing. But more than 500 people at the same time witnessed the exact same thing. 
hallucinations tend to continue throughout your life. If you have them, you tend to have them again, in other words. Why did 500 people have the same hallucination and then have it stop at the same time? It's because they weren't hallucinating. Right. You see, friends, the obvious conclusion that, you, that we should receive from Scripture is that Jesus is alive. Jesus died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And that is why his birth matters. Because he's not just a baby, he's a savior. He's not just a guru. He's not just another wise instructor. He's the savior of heaven and earth. You see, friends, I hope that this morning, that tonight, <laughs> he's your savior. I hope that if you're watching with us tonight, that you would once and for all finally confess your sin to the risen Lord and trust in him that he came as God to this earth to become a man to save sinners like us. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Friends, there's another reason, too, that we can't really accept this idea of hallucination. Oftentimes, people hallucinate things they're expecting or want very much. Right? Like a mother hallucinating a child lost to illness. If you read the New Testament, it's clear. Now, this might be surprising to you, but nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. It is a misunderstanding. It's, it's, it's a false assumption to think that his disciples were sort of back then. They were too, they don't know what we know now. They were more prone to believe, you know, supernatural things that we would never believe. And that is just not true. The Romans, first of all, did not believe in resurrections at all. The Jews believed in resurrections, but they believed in one resurrection at the end of time. So they were expecting the resurrection of a body, even the body of Christ, but not three days later, and not just him. They were not expecting this. It was not put, that, that's why when you read the Gospels and Jesus is talking about his own resurrection, they're confused. They don't know what he's talking about. No one was expecting just Jesus to rise out of the grave three days after his own death. This is why his disciples didn't believe Mary's testimony of him raising from the dead, and why, when the disciples saw him, thought they were seeing a ghost, and Jesus had to prove to them that they weren't hallucinating by saying, touch me. Thomas, put your hands in my side. Can a ghost eat fish? Friends, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and because of this fact of history, the birth of Christ is given significance. The resurrection teaches us something about his birth, and the birth teaches us something about his resurrection. Because Jesus is alive from the dead, it makes his birth not just a birth. His birth teaches us that the, that the way he came into this world mirrors the way he left it. How Christ came into this world mirrors the way he left it. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the eternal son of God, that he existed as God, created all things before any of us were even here. That this same God went through a transformation, a lowering by becoming a man. And Philippians chapter 2 describes this as an emptying. God, who alone possesses infinite power and wisdom, was lowered to the form of man. He took on flesh. But in his death, he who was lowered 
was risen up again, transformed, promoted at his resurrection. What his birth did, his resurrection reversed. God became man, and the resurrected Christ was given back his authority and glorified. You see? At his birth and resurrection, there was a marvelous transformation. One was a demotion, God becoming man. The other, a promotion, a dead man coming to life and ruling forever as king and lord. Your king and lord and savior. Through his humility came his glory. Through his death came salvation and transformation. And this is why, this is what I'm going to close with right here. This is why this matters for us. This is the great significance that it brings to our lives. Through his humility, not only was he transformed and glorified, but so can you be. By faith, we will likewise be transformed into the glory that Christ possesses now. And he will grant you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 2, it says this in the New Testament. It says, you are dead in your sins, just like Jesus in that grave, without Christ, broken. That's the problem with us. That's the problem with our world. We were dead in our sins. But God made you alive with Christ through faith. You see, friends, we don't make ourselves alive. We don't give us, we, we're not good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, competent enough. We don't earn our way back to glory. He raises our dead spirits, forgives our sin by his grace, and grants us faith. When you were dead in your sin, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal debt, which stood against us and condemned us. That was our legal standing before God. That's, that's this entire world's standing before God condemned because of sin oh and that hard news is is followed by the most wonderful news of all that christ and god did not leave us in that condition but desired our salvation so he sent his son and he nailed our debt to the cross he doesn't nail it to you he doesn't expect you to pay it he expects us to trust in the one that paid it for us would you do that tonight would you give him your life? Would you turn from your sin and trust Romans chapter 4 in verses 14 and 15? For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered to death for our sin and raised to life for our justification. Now these are some heavy Bible words. Let me explain to you what this means. <clears throat> we were dead in our sin. He was delivered over to death for our sins, for them to be forgiven, and was raised to life for our justification. All that means is that we are made right with God again, forgiven, reconciled with our Creator. There is no longer an offense. It's wiped away at the cross. It's why Simeon, when seeing the Christ child, said, For my eyes have seen your salvation a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Because of his birth, death, and resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash at the last trumpet, for the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
for the imper imperishable must clothe itself with the for the excuse me for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable death has been swallowed up in victory so when you come to Christ in repentant faith, death is swallowed up in victory. That transformation of death to life that Christ went through, so will you. Death is not the end. And this broken world as we know it is not the end. The Bible says that God will roll it up like a scroll and create a new heaven and a new earth and drape you in robes of righteousness, forgive you by his grace. Friends, you have a Savior, and I hope that this Christmas... Your eyes, like Simeon's, will see the salvation that he brings. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. So if there's no monument to mark your final rest, resting place, do not fear. Because you need no stone to remind this world that you are here. You need the living Christ. Your Lord knows where you lie and where you fall. He knows and will raise you up with a trumpet blast. He will raise you up immortal to appear with him forever when he appears. So don't have pity on us in our suffering and for us when we suffer, if you know Christ. Because the chief glory of God is not found in his, in, in his great and infinite power, the chief glory of God is found in his self-denying suffering and cross-bearing love. That's the better power. And blessed are you should he call you to know him and to bear your cross with him. Blessed is your morning, Jesus said, for you will be comforted. And because Christ lives, all of our poverty will be past and gone. Friends, if you know Christ by faith, you stand right at the door of heaven. It's about to be opened to you because Jesus is alive. You have the victory. And the Lord has shared it with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that wonderful promise in Scripture. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Oh God, in Christ, not one flame can singe one hair on our holy head. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So let cares like a wild deluge come and storms of sorrow fall. May I but safely reach my home, my God, my heaven, my all. There shall I bathe my weary soul in seas of heavenly rest and not a wave of trouble roll across my peaceful breast. God, thank you so much the birth of Christ because the way he came into this world is the way he left it transformed God we thank you for the promise of eternal life and if there's anyone here that does not know you that's holding on maybe what you're holding on is your own good works being good enough thinking that your sin isn't a problem 
And if it is a problem, you can make it good by living a good life. Oh, but you're not, you're far from Christ because you're not trusting him, you're trusting you. Friends, would you, if you don't know Jesus, would you trust in him now? Trust in him alone and his saving power. And would you take up your cross and follow him? Cry out to him this moment, God, save me. Save me. I've been far from you. I'm a sinner. And I need the salvation that only you can give. I believe that Christ died and was risen for my sin. And he took a penalty in my place so that I could have eternal life. God, we thank you so much for Christmas. Because Christmas started Christ on a journey that would lead to our salvation. We thank you for this gift, the Prince of Peace is born. We ask you now that you would bless the remainder of our time together. In Jesus Christ's precious name we pray.